If you study the history of religion, you will study a history of greed, of control, and of power. I'll say that again, because some people get a little shocked by that. If you study the history of religion, you will study a history of greed and control and power. It's one of the reasons why so many people claim to be non-religious today. Because they look back and they see horrible atrocities committed in the name of religion. And yet, there is religion throughout the world. And even people that claim not to have a religion, well, they still cling to some form of religion. And I think the reason is, we all understand that there is something wrong with this world. Every single one of us recognize that there is some type of brokenness in this world, and we need answers. We need a solution to the brokenness. Well, God has revealed the answer. God has revealed the solution. But there are other people that have learned that they can capitalize on that solution. They, can, they have learned that they can capitalize and they can gain wealth, they can gain power, they can gain influence. And so what they have done is they have made a bunch of counterfeits. There is counterfeit religion everywhere. There are counterfeit prophets, counterfeit teachers everywhere that are trying to use you and control you and make you their merchandise so that they can have more power, more money, more influence. If you study the history of religion, you will see this to be true. And that is what Peter will address for us today. So turn with me, if you will, to 2 Peter. We've gotten into chapter 2. We're going to read uh, verse 1 all the way through 10a. Now, the I always like to make this disclaimer. The numbering chapters and verses for your Bible is not inspired. God inspired the words. But, you know, as they're writing, they weren't like, oh, chapter 3, verse 1. That came later on to help us identify sections of Scripture. So, there's a little bit of argument. So at one point, the, the people that were doing the, the chapters and verses thought that verse 10 flowed really well the whole way through. But people are now disagreeing with that, and some people will end that and start a new sentence and a new paragraph smack in the middle of verse 10. We're going to go through that today. That's kind of how I follow along with it. I think uh, verse 10b is the beginning of a new section, and so we're going to stop at 10a. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, 
but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he condemned them to extinction by making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. All right, there's a lot going on there in a little bit of time, so we're going to go ahead and dig right in. So, he starts off with but false prophets. So, we have got that but there. That is a, a, a contrasting conjunction, and it is a big but. So, we need to examine what is he contrasting here. Well, last week we talked about the prophets, right? We talked about, uh, well, let me back up even further. He starts the entire letter off with reestablishing sound doctrine, with reestablishing God's grace and God's grace that is lavished upon you, that you have been made righteous, that you have been made holy. He's going to confront false teachers, and part of what the false teachers want to do is convince you that you are not righteous, convince you that you are not holy, convince you that you need them. So Peter has to establish that sound doctrine that God has lavished his grace upon you. And then he uses scripture to back this up. And that's what we got into last week. The scripture, that that is the proof. The scripture is the proof that these prophets were moved along by the Holy Spirit to write scripture. And that's what he's contrasting here, that these prophets were authentic, but there are false prophets. So there were authentic prophets, there were also false prophets. These false prophets were deliberately deceptive people. These false prophets knew a prophet is simply a mouth, someone who speaks on behalf of God, a mouthpiece for God. So these false prophets knew that they weren't a mouthpiece for God. They knew that they weren't speaking the words on behalf of God. So there were false prophets also arose among the people. So there were these people that knew they could make a counterfeit. They knew that being the mouthpiece of God could bring them some type of influence, some type of power. So they decided that they would capitalize on it. Now, if they were really examining what was happening to the mouthpieces of God, they might have reconsidered. Because if we look over throughout the Old Testament, what happens to the majority of the prophets? They die in horrible ways. But these false prophets knew that they could make a counterfeit, and they could begin to profit. So that's what happened. They arose among the people, meaning they arose among the Israelites. These false prophets. And then he says, just as there will be false teachers. Just as. So he's saying that there were false prophets, and just as there were false prophets, 
there will be false teachers. Now, there have already been false teachers. False teachers have already infiltrated the church here. So what's going on? He uses a, a future tense, if you notice, will be false teachers. That will, I think he's emphasizing that they're already infiltrated the church and they're going to continue to infiltrate the church. The gospel is something of value. People need to hear the gospel. And anytime you have something of value, you will have counterfeits. So there are counterfeit teachers out there who are trying to infiltrate. So these false teachers will be among us who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. So this term here, will secretly bring in, it's actually the term for smuggling in. Some of your translations might even have that word, smuggle in. So these false teachers will smuggle in destructive heresies. And one of the main things we need to get from this term is that these heresies come from the outside, infiltrating and becoming more authoritative than God's word itself. That's what's going on with these false teachers. They're smuggling in philosophies that are from the outside that now will become more authoritative in our life than God's word. And they will bring in destructive heresies. These false teachers and their destructive heresies will have two results. We'll get to those in just a little bit. But I think we need to identify what a heresy is. There's a little bit of a misconception, I think, because sometimes we hear that word heretic and heresy being thrown around pretty easily. A heresy, and especially in the early church, what a heresy was, it always pertained, it was a false teaching pertaining to the gospel. It was a false teaching pertaining to the gospel. So there are differences within churches. There are differences between churches, right? There are differences on how we view governance. We just went through our, our Get to Know CBC class, so governance is on my mind. It's always on my mind when we go through that. And we talk quite a bit about differences of governance. Governance means how is the church governed, right? So there are congregationalist churches. That's what we are. We believe that's uh, that's biblical. There are Presbyterian-style churches where, so a congregation, the final authority lies with the congregation. A Presbyterian church, the final authority lies with an administrative body outside of the congregation. Okay, so those are two differences, right? Those differences are really important differences. Those differences can really change a church. But one's not a heresy. We're a congregational church, but we wouldn't say a Presbyterian-style governance is a heresy because it doesn't deal with the gospel. It's how the church is run. It's important, but it's not an attack on the gospel. There are several other ideas that you can think of. And like I gave you an assignment last week. Did anybody, did anybody take advantage of the assignment? What are some lies that are easily believed? And I don't know. I, maybe I should just give another assignment. On your way home today, as you drive home, Think about what are some other differences. Talk amongst your family. What are some other differences that, that are theological differences that we might have within a church and within uh, or with other denominations that are not heresies? So there's a lot of them out there, right? Talk about it amongst yourselves today. So there are a lot of differences, but they aren't necessarily a heresy. 
a heresy has to do with the gospel. So there, I think there are three different ways that we can identify a heresy. One is an attack on Christ's person. So a heresy has to deal with who Christ is, right? So if someone is denying the deity of Christ, we'd call that a heresy. If someone is denying the humanity of Christ, we might call that a heresy. If someone is denying that he died for our sins and rose again, we'd call that a heresy. So you see, a heresy is an attack on the personhood of Christ himself. But it's also an attack on the gospel. And what is the gospel? The gospel starts off with, you're a sinner, you're depraved, you're wicked. We have all rebelled against God in some form in our life. All of us have shaken our fist at God at some point in our life and said, forget you, God, I want to be the one in control. And for that reason, we all deserve death. But God, being so loving towards us, came in the flesh and paid the price for us. And then to prove it all, rose again. And all it takes for us to be saved is faith in Him. That's the Gospel. So I think there's two major attacks on the Gospel. When we, so a heresy can be an attack on the personhood of Christ. A heresy can also be an attack on the gospel, and I think that it comes in two major ways. We find in Galatians, Galatians, Paul says that if you add anything to faith, then it's no longer salvation by grace. So that's one form of a heresy. We often don't think of that as a heresy, but that's a heresy to say that salvation comes by faith plus by faith plus baptism. Now, we practice baptism here. But we don't believe it's for salvation. We believe it's important. We're going to have a baptism service here on the 30th. It's important for us to celebrate. But that doesn't produce salvation. You might say, well, it's salvation plus starting to grow in your works. Meaning, I'm going to be saved if I put my faith and trust in Christ and then I quit cussing. Did you know that you can be saved and still cuss? I know that's a, that's a mind blower. But your salvation does not depend upon your language. Now don't get me wrong, I don't cuss. But that's not what my salvation depends on. So salvation plus anything, or sorry, faith plus anything, faith plus works, faith plus baptism, faith plus That's no longer salvation. That is a heresy. Because, and Paul lays it out very clearly in Galatians, because then what you're saying is that the cross of Christ was meaningless. You still have to work for your salvation. It's a heresy. But conversely, the other other side of the coin of heresy, I believe, is going the opposite route. And that is saying... Not that I need to work for my salvation, but that I never needed salvation in the first place. I mean, we hear this all the time. God is love, which is true. And then we forget to mention that God is also holy and just. Perfectly holy. Perfectly just. And so we stop believing 
that we have ever lived in rebellion against Him, and that we don't need Him to pay the price for our sin. And along with that side of the coin of heresy comes that He will also not return to judge. So we stop believing that God is a perfect judge altogether. We, we start to make God in our own image, and we believe that the perfect God is all-loving, and because He's all-loving, He's going to embrace me in all of my sin, and He will never challenge me to grow in Him. He will never challenge me, and He will never judge sin. Therefore, we don't need salvation. So you see, those oh, I think those are the big categories of heresy. The, an attack on Jesus to say that salvation comes through faith plus anything, or to say that God's not going to judge the world, that we're all perfectly fine. That last category is the category that Peter's dealing with. Paul dealt with the first category. Peter's going to deal with the last category. All right, so that's where we're going at. So, those are destructive heresies. To say faith plus anything is a destructive heresy. To attack the personhood of Christ is a destructive heresy, meaning it's going to divide the church and destroy the church, and these heresies will also stagnate our growth in Christ. So if you have put your faith and trust in Christ, but then say, but God doesn't care about sin, you will stagnate in your walk with Christ. So these are destructive heresies. And then he goes on, even denying the master who bought them. So these false teachers who are smuggling in destructive heresies, that's part of their heresy, is denying Christ. This reference, the master who bought them, is a reference to Christ. And it's a reference to Jesus paid the price. He paid the price for our sins. He paid the price for your sins, so now he is our master. And what he, they're doing is denying this master. And how they... Later on, we'll find out that how they deny him is that they deny that he will come again. They will deny the second coming. They will deny that he will judge anyone. That he is the perfect judge. So they deny the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Now, when we read this term swift, we think of like, okay, so these false teachers are going to have destruction immediately, right? Like, boom, you taught something wrong. Also, I want to make, forgot, I want to just make one last disclaimer. There is a huge difference between a false teacher and a teacher who gets something wrong. A false teacher is someone who has realized that they can capitalize on a false teaching, and so they are being deliberately deceptive. There are pastors who get things wrong. I know it's a shock. Just a second, I'm about to blow your mind. I've been wrong. I have been wrong about things. The laughter shows that you agree. All right, thank you. Uh, yes, I have been wrong about things. I, but don't put, please don't put me in that category of false teacher. There's a difference between being wrong and being deliberately deceptive to gain. So I've been wrong about things. Typically, when someone calls me out and they bring Scripture, typically I can repent of that, okay? So if, if like, I'm being offensive and I'm getting something wrong, please come to me in love. 
and bring bring the word and show it to me, and I'll I'll say, well, let me think about that for a while. All right. So, anyways, there's a big difference between false teachers and teachers who get it wrong. Sometimes we get it wrong, but these ones, uh, you know. So sometimes we run into a, a false teacher and we look at that term swift destruction, and we're like, wait. This is a false teacher. Why isn't he being destroyed yet? And we even see some false teachers that last. And not only do they last, but man, it seems like they're thriving. And I know as I say that, you can think of some false teachers in your mind right now where you're like, good night, those guys are just, they're living the life, aren't they? So this term swift, I don't think designates a timeline as much as it does the action of the destruction. Meaning when the destruction comes, it's going to be swift. Not meaning that it will happen immediately, that you know you have a false teaching and boom, destruction comes upon you, but that when it does come, it's going to come fast. Alright, so they're going to bring upon themselves swift destruction and many will follow their sensuality. I want to highlight that many will follow. If you don't think that you could possibly follow a false teacher, you're being arrogant. And that is the first step to falling in line with false teaching. One of my mentor pastors used to say, if you don't think you're seducible, then you're seducible. What does that mean? That means we're all seducible, right? If you don't think you're above false teaching, then you are prime target for someone sucking you in with their false teaching. False teachers are very winsome people. They win people over. They're smooth talkers. They're very charismatic in the way they carry themselves. And if you don't think that you can be carried away by that false teaching, that's the first step to being carried away by false teaching. One of the ways we guard ourselves from false teaching is we say, I'm susceptible to false teaching. So many will follow their sensualities. This term, will follow, is a term that Jesus used as he was calling disciples. To follow him. So what Peter's doing here is really interesting. In the Greek, you can really see it come through. Is he's saying this is like an anti-discipleship model. Jesus had a discipleship model where we're supposed to follow him. And we're supposed to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ, right? And so what we want to do is we want to mentor people to become better followers of Jesus. And what these false teachers are doing is an anti-discipleship. Meaning, what they want to do is get you to to fall away from Jesus. And instead of following Jesus, it, he's very clear here, is instead you will follow your own evil desires. You will begin to let your desire control you instead of submitting to Jesus and following Jesus. So this is one of the reasons why many will follow them. I don't know very many... In fact, I've never personally met a, a pastor that went into the ministry to be a false teacher. Because I don't know a lot of pastors that are like, I know how I'm going to make the big bucks. 
I'm going to go be a pastor. Most people that want to make the big bucks go into ministry, or go into business, not ministry. <laughs> they go into business. But what happens, and I think this happens more often than we'd like to admit, and I have met some pastors that have fallen into this trap, is that they begin to pastor a church. They love the church. But they're very winsome. And as they begin to win people over, and as people begin to love their speaking abilities, they begin to be invited to go speak here, to go speak there. And pretty soon they become very popular. And when they become popular, they learn that they have a lot of influence. And their desires begin to carry them away. They begin to follow their desire for wealth, their desire for influence. And in fact, and because they begin to do that, they, they even begin to twist or to give up a little bit of scripture here and there. They begin to make small compromises and they'll always justify it. Well, it's for the sake of the gospel. I can compromise this one little piece of theology. It's just a little piece of theology. But it, when I compromise this one piece of theology, my, in, my sphere of influence grows. And I actually have the ability to preach the gospel to more people. So I'm just going to have this small compromise so that I can reach more with the gospel. And then they begin to compromise a little bit more over here and a little bit more over here. And pretty soon they're compromising the entire gospel and they have become these false teachers who are bringing in destructive heresies. But that's not how it started. It started with a passion and a love for the gospel and it turned into following their own sensuality. Well, we've already read one of the results that they will receive or bring upon themselves swift destruction. The second result is, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. This term, blasphemed, means to slander. So what he's saying here is, because of these false teachers bringing, smuggling in these heresies because of their ability to compromise a little here and a little there and eventually following their own desires, then the way of truth, meaning the gospel and the whole Christian life, will be slandered. And people from the outside looking in will say, why on earth would I want to be a Christian? They're no different than anyone else. Why on earth would I want to submit to the Bible? Have you seen a Christian? And that is the second result of allowing these false teachers to continue. He continued, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. This term exploit means to make merchandise of. That's what the false teacher wants to do, is make merchandise out of you. You become their product. 
and they do it with false words. Twisting Scripture, smuggling in ideas, and making those ideas more authoritative in our life than Scripture. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. This term idle, it means lazy, and what he's getting at here is, so we see these false teachers looking like they're thriving, don't we? And what he's getting at here is that at, we have to trust God that at some point they will be rightly judged. That's what we have to do. We, and not only do we have to trust it, but we have to know it. That God's judgment is not lazy. That God's judgment is not asleep. But that it will come. And then he's going to go, after these warnings, he's going to go through and he's going to give us some examples. And, and these examples are meant to encourage us. So he starts off with, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So we're going to have four if statements followed up by a then. So he's setting us up, right? So first off, the first piece of evidence is that God did not spare the angels. And most theologians think that this is a reference to when Satan fell and a third of the angels fell with him and God did not spare them, but they are being kept until the day of judgment. The next example is, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So he, so we go from judgment to two sides of a coin now. And the two sides are that he did not spare the ancient world, right? So the ancient world was wicked, but he preserved Noah. So what we see here is not only is he going to judge the unjust, but he is going to rescue the just. So sometimes it's difficult to preach the truth. Sometimes it's difficult to stand on the truth of Scripture. But we have to keep moving forward, and we can trust that God, in the end, God will rescue us. So how long did Noah preach for? 120 years. 120 years he spent building that ark. 120 years he spent preaching righteousness and being laughed at. 120 years of a wicked world laughing at him. Sometimes we have a hard time with 10 minutes of the world laughing at us. But we have to stay true to Scripture no matter how much the world wants us to bend on issues. So he saves Noah. And then we get the next two, which are going to go a little bit deep. So he starts off with, God will judge the unrighteous. Then he, he digs a little deeper that God, not only will God judge the unrighteous, but he's going to save the righteous. And now we're going to see him save another righteous soul. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. I want to emphasize that that is an example of what will happen. And that should motivate us. It should motivate us to stand on the truth of Scripture, but it should also motivate us to want to preach the Gospel. Because there are people, there are lost souls in this world that are going to suffer the same fate as Sodom and Gomorrah. And we should care about that. 
And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. So what's interesting here is you don't often hear Lot described as righteous. If you remember the story, what happened? Lot follows Abraham. He's Abraham's relative. He follows Abraham to Egypt. And he really likes Egypt. In fact, he wants to become more like the Egyptians. But Abraham goes back to the promised land and Lot follows. Now during this time, Lot would come to know the one true God. He would come to believe in the one true God. But he was still struggling with some desire. God blesses them, grows their herds, grows their herds to the point where they can no longer be in the same area. Their herds are just too big, so they so Abraham gives them a decision. Lot, you can either go that way or that way. I'll go the opposite way. Well, Sodom, we see, is a good land. It's a, a plentiful land, but it's also a land that's like Egypt. It's a land that is sick and twisted, where you can get your desires fulfilled. The Bible makes it clear that's part of the reason why Lot chooses that path. But the Bible also calls Lot righteous. And I think what it's saying, it's kind of like using our modern day term of believer. Salvation has always been by faith. Lot believed God. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. I think Lot also believes God and it's counted to him as righteousness. Now he's making bad decisions. But that didn't stop God from calling him righteous. We make bad decisions. It doesn't stop God from calling us righteous. But he makes some bad decisions, and he's going to suffer because of those bad decisions, right? So he makes this bad decision, and then it says, For as that righteous man lived among them day after day. So he's a righteous man, and he's living with them. He was tormenting his righteous soul. So seeing this wicked, he thought giving into his desire was what was going to fulfill him, but now it's only tormenting him. And when we think about the false teachers, it, it, there is a temptation in our culture to say, you know, we can just give up a little bit. We can give a little bit of ground here. And I've seen that church down the road where they gave a little bit of ground and they're growing exponentially, so they must be sharing the gospel really well. And we're just going to give up a little bit of ground. And we'll let a little bit of wickedness in. Not realizing that when we let a little in, it begins to torment our souls. To be around wickedness will torment you. So he was being tormented. But God saves him. And that's the point. We've got God didn't spare the angels. He's going to judge them justly. And then we've got 
the ancient world, that God justly judged the ancient world, but preserved Noah. And then we've got one step further down the line that God didn't save, preserve Sodom and Gomorrah, but he justly judged them. And yet, even though Lot threw his lot in with Sodom, God still saved him. And what he's getting at here is, you might fall prey to false teachers. You might end up walking that route. And two things you need to understand is, one, if you walk that route, your soul will be tormented. You will start to see the wickedness of the false teachers. And if you continue to stay there, that will torment you. But secondly, if you submit to God's word, he will save you from that. But in the end, and this is what he's really driving at, is in the end, even if you don't submit to God's word and get pulled out of that false teaching, in the end, God will still save you. Although Lot was made some wicked decisions, because he believed in God, because he put his faith in God, God still called him righteous, and in the end, he was saved. That's the point Peter's driving home here. So we've got those four if-then statements, or if statements. That's when we get to the then. And this is the point we need to emphasize. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly. If he knows how to rescue Lot, he knows how to rescue you. The Lord knows how to rescue the un, or the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. God is a just God, and He will judge the unrighteous. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passions and despise authority. Now what's interesting here is when we look at that in the lust of defiling passions. It's the same language used uh, uh, in verse 2 with the way of truth will be blasphemed. Meaning that that anti-discipleship language, sorry, uh, and will follow. That anti-discipleship language is used here again. Meaning they will follow after their lust. It's that anti-discipleship language that people have turned in the, the following after Jesus or following after their own desires. So it's, he will especially judge those who are following after their own desires, and not just those alone, but also those who despise authority. And the authority that he's referencing here is God's authority. And it's coming back to this idea that we have all lived in rebellion against God at some point in our lives. We have all wanted to say, God, I don't want to do it your way. God, I want to live my life. I want to call the shots. I want to be the one who's in control. And we've all shaken our fist at some point at God saying, forget you I want to be God. And in that rebellion against God's authority, it is offensive 
to think that there is a holy God that will judge us for our own wickedness. It is offensive to the non-believer that there is a holy God that will judge. But that doesn't make it any less true. So, the history of religion is a history of counterfeits trying to manipulate and control. It is a history of false teachers who want to make merchandise out of you. It is important for us to trust God in all of it. It is important for us to recognize that we are seducible, that we can follow that path, but it's also important for us to recognize that there are ways that we can identify counterfeits. So how do you identify a counterfeit? In the banking world, I have a brother-in-law who's a banker, and in the banking world, they want to train their, their tellers how to identify counterfeits. That's very important for them, right? Like if, if a counterfeiter comes in, they need to identify the counterfeits. And so when they go through training, they don't have them look at a bunch of counterfeits. They have them study the real thing. And they want them to get so immersed in this real thing and, and just be able to know how the real thing feels, how it smells, how, how it crinkles up. They want them to know the real thing so much so that when a counterfeit comes in, it's easily identifiable. That's how we identify counterfeits. It's by immersing ourselves in the truth of Scripture. So much so, it's by looking at the truth of Scripture and submitting our lives to it and letting it define us instead of trying to define it. It is by absolutely immersing ourselves in the truth of Scripture that we begin to identify the lies of counterfeits. May we, as a congregation, be so immersed in Scripture and let Scripture call the shots in our lives so much so that when a counterfeit shows up, we'll be able to identify it. Dear Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that although false teachers can come, and oftentimes they're very persuasive, You have given us the truth by which to check anything. You've given us the standard. You've given us what, we, what is our final authority. It's not someone's word. It's not someone's else's teaching. It is Your Word that is our final authority. And we pray, Lord, that You would help us know it so well that when the counterfeit comes, when the false teacher comes to make merchandise of us, that we'd be able to identify it. In Your name we pray. Amen.